You are listening to Preaching and Teaching on the Man of God Network of Podcasts. This resource combines expositional sermons and lectures from the classroom of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary to help equip listeners for the work of the ministry. Please turn with me to Titus chapter 2, where we'll be looking at verses 1 to 6. I will be reading the entire chapter in just a moment. Remember that this book consists of Paul reminding Titus how to help the churches on Crete by his example and his teaching. His emphasis is to be on transmitting apostolic doctrine to the believers and applying it in a very practical way. The book divides nicely into three sections marked largely off by the three chapters in our English versions. In chapter one, Paul instructs Titus on doctrine and duty in the church. In chapter two, the emphasis is doctrine and duty in the Christian home. And in chapter three, the doctrine and duty of Christians in the civil sphere, out in the world. In all of this, Paul's focus is on Titus teaching what is true and healthy and how that truth should impact believers' lives in very practical and productive ways. So please listen as I read Titus chapter 2. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so... Train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. So that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. Four. Now here's here's how and why all of that can be actually accomplished by believers. Four, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all men, for all people, for all kinds of people. Older men, older women, Younger women, younger men, pastors, even pastors can be saved. 
and servants. The grace of God has appeared to all of those kinds of people. And it trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. In most of Paul's letters, his doctrinal instruction comes first and then he applies it to his readers. Think of the books of Romans, Ephesians, and Colossians, where there are very clear examples. He gives lengthy expositions of truth, and then he explains the effect that that truth should have on Christians' lives. For Paul, right doctrine is the basis for and leads to right practice. And so he usually teaches truth first, and then he applies it. But in this chapter, he reverses that method. In verse 1, he urges Titus to teach what accords with, what fits with sound doctrine. In other words, he's saying, um, teach application, make application. This means that the true and healthy teaching of the apostles, sound doctrine, has behaviors that are suitable to it. The truth does always lead to holy character and holy living. In our modern context, we say things like this. Ideas have consequences. So in verse 1, Paul commands Titus to teach the things that properly go along with healthy doctrine. And so what follows in verses 2 through 10 is exactly that. A list of virtues, practices, and motivations are laid out for the church. This is the instruction that Titus is to give the churches. So the content of verses 2 to 10 are the things that harmonize with sound doctrine. You see, believe it or not, not every way of life comports with the Christian religion. The truth of Christianity has a certain lifestyle that fits with it. And Paul delineates it in these verses. It's only after these lists that he explains how it is that all of this can be done. Again, look at the ver beginning of verse 11, for the grace of God. And we'll look at this in detail at a later time. But notice that the reason all of these things can be urged upon the Cretan Christians is because of the powerful and effective grace of God. Yeah. It doesn't merely offer salvation. It brings it in. It ushers it in. It applies it. 
It trains believers. It doesn't merely suggest. It has a training effect on believers so that they renounce sin and put on godliness. This grace is the reason that Christ lived and died to redeem a people from lawlessness and to create a people zealous for good works. So this list of virtues, of family patterns and motivations, they're not to be done by any of you in your native strength, unaided by God but in the power of a regenerate life. In other words, doing these things doesn't make you a Christian. It doesn't. Not even a little. It doesn't make you a Christian. These are the marks of someone who has become a new creation in Christ by the sheer, powerful, changing, yes, even conquering, grace of Christ. This means these patterns for the Christian life are attainable, brothers and sisters. Yes, amen. Because God's grace rules yes. in the life of a believer. Amen. And all of this is in stark contrast to the false teachers. Verse 1 begins with, but as for you, Titus, but as for you, Titus was not to be like the false teachers of chapter 1, verse 16. Oh, they were like in that they both taught. They both claimed to be teachers and leaders. They even both claimed, Titus and the false teachers, to know God. Do you see that in verse 16? They profess. Oh, they have a profession of Christianity. But words are cheap. <laughs> Professions can be faked. Or mistaken. The test of real Christianity is in the life, not the mouth. Yes. And so while the false teachers claim to know God, the text goes on to say they deny him with their works. Works are the test of whether you truly know God or not. And as Jesus said, by their fruits, you shall know them. And after describing the false teacher's works, Paul could say they are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Apostolic doctrine is fitting for you to live a holy life. But the lack of regeneration in a false teacher, their belief in, in error, well, their works fit with that. They aren't fit for obedience. They're only fit for disobedience. The Cretan Christians were not to live that way. Titus was to teach them both sound doctrine, apostolic truth, and the lifestyle of living that fits with those truths. Okay. Then in verses 2 to 10, Paul explains what should characterize six adult groups in the church. 
Let me say that again. In verses 2 to 10, Paul explains what should characterize six adult groups in the church. Now, let me say a few things about that summary statement before we dive into the first four of these uh, instructions for the groups. And I'm going to say a few things in reverse order from that last statement of um, what should characterize these six adult groups in the church. First of all, all of these virtues and practices are laid on believers, that is, church members. They have new hearts. They have the spirit of Christ. And so they can and will, to one degree or another, possess these things. Unbelievers do not have the power to do them. And if they have any form of these things in their lives, through common grace, it doesn't earn them right standing with God at all. It may, in some ways, make their present lives a little better. But that isn't why they are given. This is not a self-help list for men and women to work at self-improvement. That is to get Christianity exactly backwards. And most of us have come out of churches that use chapters like this exactly for that purpose. Come to church and find out how your marriage or your this or your that will be better. What about the glory of God? What about you doing what's right? Oh, and things will get better, absolutely. (laughs) But that's not why they're given here. In fact, if you look for that as a motivation in this chapter, you won't find it, as we'll point out later. It's not there. He's not trying to tell some unsaved young married woman, well, if you'll do these certain things, you'll have a successful home someday. Rather, he's saying... This is what the power of the gospel looks like in the lives of the redeemed. This is how God is glorified. This is how good works are multiplied. This is how the gospel can be made beautiful. And yes, it will bring joy and fulfillment to obedient Christians. But that's not the end goal or the motivation anywhere in this passage. Now, it's given in other places, and so it's not illegitimate. It's just not what's important here or most important here. This is a list of what the lives of believers in Christ's church should look like and how that glorifies God. So that's the first thing. Uh, This won't be uh, a, a psychoanalyzing session. This will not be a a self-help mechanism this morning. Secondly, there are six adult groups listed here. Now, that doesn't mean that children are unimportant to the apostle. We know this because Paul directly addresses children in other letters, such as Ephesians and Colossians. But here, in this particular setting, Paul gives Titus instructions for the adults. In view are the older men, probably this is men over 40, older women, women over 40, younger women between roughly the ages of 20 to 40, and young men the same age. 
Next are pastors, and finally, bond servants or slaves, whether men or women. So that's the second thing. Thirdly, these groups have somewhat different callings in Paul's mind. Of course, in one sense, they all have the same calling in Christ. Amen. To walk by faith in righteousness until the end. But Paul is a very practical man, and he wants Titus to be the same. He understands that the tests that come against a 68-year-old man might be different than the tests that come to a 21-year-old young lady. He understands that the needed graces of an older woman are not necessarily the same as a young slave boy. And so he distinguishes how the one grace of God should train each of them in their respective places. Again, what we call callings. Renouncing ungodliness, verse 12, and worldly passions will look different as a 68-year-old male and in a 21-year-old female. It simply will. God has placed every believer in a particular set of relationships and situations. And it's in that specific calling that you must exercise faith and endure to the end. Amen. It's very, very easy for us to want to live somebody else's life or to pick a different calling. But God has perfectly placed you in your calling. In this time in your life, married or unmarried, children or not, whatever your job is, and on and on the list could go, he's perfectly tailored that so that he will receive glory and you will get to heaven. So don't live somebody else's life and don't take the virtues that they need for their life and say, I'm, I'm really good at that or I really want to work at that. You work at those that apply to your calling. So all of these instructions can, in general, help all of us. That's true. But please pay special attention to the ones that, that directly apply to you now or that are likely to in the future. If you're a young man, maybe headed toward older man status, well, you ought to be knowing where you're going, right? right. And you should pay attention to verse 2, not just verse 6, for example. Fourth. You need to understand that these callings are typical ones. There are exceptions. <laughs> Not every young female Christian is married or has children. Not every older woman has the gifts or graces or opportunities to train younger women. Think of someone who's bedridden, for example. Um, as we talked about earlier in this book when studying the requirements or the qualifications for a pastor. We explained that while the, the, the virtues, the graces are absolute musts, the circumstances can vary. It wasn't sinful that Jesus didn't marry or that Paul wasn't married. It made him more useful 
He could use it more for the glory of God. But ordinarily, men and women marry, and ordinarily they have children. And so Paul writes here what is the typical. He's, in these few short verses, he's trying to catch the majority of the Christians in the Cretan churches. Well, fifth and finally, before we look at these first four groups, notice, and, and you may have caught this when we read it, Notice that self-control or related concepts are strongly and repeatedly represented in these instructions. Now, the idea of self-control is having a sound mind. In other words, you aren't ruled by your impulses, emotions, and actions, but you rule them. And so God's truth is lived out in holiness. This virtue is a fruit of the spirit. It's the work of God in a regenerate heart. And it grows in us by his work in us. According to verse 12, it is a mark of being a Christian. Every true Christian has some self-control. None of us, this side of heaven, have all we want, but every true Christian has some. Paul, when preaching to Felix and Drusilla in Acts 24, his message was about faith in Jesus Christ. Oh, I wonder what the content of his preaching and teaching about faith in Christ to that man was. Ah, verses 24 to 26 tell us what they are. And it doesn't sound much like the gospel presentations we usually hear today. But just in case you're doubting, Paul is right and we are are wrong. We follow Paul's example here. Paul reasoned with Felix and Drusilla about three things. Righteousness, self-control, and judgment. So Paul had the courage to stand before this man who could, who was known for his cruelty and could have easily put him to death and explained that God required of him absolute righteousness and that Felix fell short of that and how the righteousness of Christ was needed. The just live by faith, right? Well, what follows? Receiving the righteousness of Christ by faith. What follows? Well, it's all summed up with this word, self-control. It's almost a synonym for sanctification. Self-control. That is what then marked the disciple of Christ. They are implementing the life God wanted. They don't continue to live controlled by the, what, worldly passions and ungodliness of their previous life. Now, now, they are trained in self-control and being trained. It's a process. And all of that because there is a coming judgment. So self-control is a virtue, 
but it's really more in this passage than a simple virtue. It describes renouncing sinful passions, living in an upright manner, and therefore, again, it characterizes all true Christians. It's the same word required of elders in chapter 1, verse 8, and it denotes self-mastery. And so it's urged upon all the various groups, as we'll look at them, in one way or another. So let's now look at four of these six groups, and we'll make a few uses and be done. First of all, older men, verse 2. Mature men are to be noted for four kinds of moral excellence. First, they should be sober-minded. That means to be clear-headed, vigilant, alert, and balanced. They should strive to not be distracted from the important things in life. It is a shameful thing for, a, for an older man to spend all of his time on trinkets and silliness. That's the very opposite of this. They should strive not to be distracted from the important things in life, but instead to be alert to recognize spiritual dangers. And the response to those things should be temperate and moderate, not excessive. Sober-minded older men don't kill fleas with sledgehammers, nor do they ignore raging lions. Older men should not be easily overwhelmed by what life brings, and they shouldn't overreact in response. Instead, they should know how God wants them to respond, and they should do so with dignity and self-control. Those are the second and third virtues here. They are sober-minded, dignified, and self-controlled. A dignified man acts with both courage and honor. He rules his natural tendencies to respond sinfully, and in doing so, he sets an example for others. And then in his character, he is sound. Notice this fourth word in our verse. That means healthy. And he's sound or healthy in three areas of his life, in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. In his faith, that is, in his understanding of the truths of Christianity and his trust in God, he seeks to maintain his own spiritual health. He doesn't wander around or off into weird or odd, unorthodox beliefs. He doesn't forget God. Second, in love, in his attempts at doing good to others, he's wise and stable. He's not unhealthy in his actions to others because he's defective in his knowledge of the truth or characterized by foolishness. That's, that's not what this man is. And he's also sound or healthy in steadfastness, in his continuation in all of these things. Which means that when affliction comes, and it does come to older men, he patiently endures it. 
All of these should characterize older men. And younger men in particular should aim at these things so that as the years progress, their lives will increasingly fit with the truth of the word of God. They'll be reflectors of the things that accord with or fit with sound doctrine. That brings us to older women, verses 3 and part of verse 4. First, Paul would that older women would be reverent in behavior. This is a very interesting word and, a, and an unexpected one. It literally describes the way a priestess should act in a temple. So it's a, it's a word taken from pagan culture that Paul is using here. Her attention and work should recognize that on a day-to-day, moment-by-moment basis, she's in the presence of God. She is serving him all the time with her life. So an older Christian woman's demeanor should also not be silly or frivolous. She should not waste her life on trivialities, but spend herself in the work that God has given her. She ought to keep herself busy for the Lord and not to indulge in two things that older women might perhaps be especially prone to, evil speech and drunkenness. In reaching 40 or 50 or more years, these women may not have the same demanding schedule as when they had children or perhaps husbands. So there's the temptation to go, as Paul puts it elsewhere, from house to house. Or in our day, from one online site to another, or from one phone to another, and sin with their mouths. And so Paul warns against slander. You know the word. It's the word diabolos. Older ladies, do not be devilish with your mouths. Instead, be reverent and useful to God. Nor should they allow themselves to be enslaved to wine. When we are tired, and, and we all know this in whatever state of life we're in, when we're tired, the self-control starts to give way, doesn't it? Well, what happens if you're tired all the time? What if you're old and tired and you don't have many kind of forced responsibilities? Well, it's very easy to give yourself to just, I'm just going to do whatever makes me feel good. I'm going to veg in front of the TV with too many bottles of wine or, or whatever, or whatever it is. The question is, are you training yourself in discipline? Are you serving God in this way? You are to be self-controlled in these areas. Wait, wait a minute, Pastor. I, I don't see that word in verse 3. Well, it's not. It's not in verse 3. Well, then why do I press this on your consciences? Because it's in verse 5. They are to teach the younger women to be self-controlled. Oh, they don't have to be self-controlled themselves, but they have to teach the... Oh, yeah, that doesn't make any sense, does it? 
because this kind of teaching is a very practical mentoring training kind of teaching. And so you have to exhibit it. That's how you're going to train the younger women to be this way. Right. You're going to say, I remember when it was like this for me. And you need to pray and I'll help practically and in prayer and in other ways. And, and we'll work together on self-control. So, of course, they must possess self-restraint themselves if they are to successfully train others in it. But notice the older women are also tasked with a particular work. Now, this is explained with two phrases. First is at the end of verse 3, they are told they must teach what is good. In other words, these are some of those things that are fitting with sound doctrine. These are good things. Then in verse 4, this is detailed. Notice the verse begins with, and so train. You see, this is a kind of teaching that is a training of younger women. Teaching the good is eminently practical, and it results in the young women being trained in what pleases God in the context of home and family. I find it interesting that the word translated train in the ESV is a verbal form of the word, can you guess? Self-control. It's everywhere here. It's inescapable. Yeah. They are to self-control the younger women into self-control. There to pass it on. So the teaching is a kind of mentoring, a showing how to apply the grace of self-control and other things to the responsibilities of the home, a place where it is so needed by fathers and mothers and everyone else in the home and where it's so difficult to maintain. So this teaching is not in the context of the public meetings of a local church. That's forbidden in 1 Corinthians 14, 34, and 1 Timothy 2, 12. But there must be this kind of teaching and training for the next generation of younger Christian women. And the older women are tasked with that. Now, it's interesting to me anyway as a pastor, that Titus is only indirectly the young women's teacher. According to verse 1, he is to teach those things that accord with sound doctrine. And of course, that includes everyone in the church. But it's not his job to do the practical implementation in the lives of young women. Certainly, this is for at least two reasons. First, Quite obviously, he's not a woman himself, and in many areas, he won't have the requisite practical experience or understanding in order to train them well. Right. But secondly, surely it's also for reasons of purity, that a pastor shouldn't ordinarily train young women in their duties, at least not in any close or personal sense. Amen. As Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5.2, treat the older women as mothers, the younger women as sisters in all purity. 
And so in the practical training of young women, the older women are to play a significant, even leading role. Now here comes the meddling. This means that older women must be willing to help in this way as and when they can. You, you, you must. <laughs> That's what older Christian women do. But maybe more importantly, younger women should look to them for help. Don't go online first. Don't even go to your pastor first. Don't think about someone who for the kind of question you have, and this might be different women at different times, who might be able to help me in this? And you go there. And it also means, thirdly, that pastors shouldn't be expected or required to help the young married women to the same degree in these areas that they do, for example, the young men or the older women or the older men. Let's move now to younger women. And we need to be moving along here. Verses four and five. The fact that Paul has tasked Titus with tasking the older women to do that, though, doesn't mean that Paul and Titus were less concerned for the younger women. In fact, the instructions for the younger women are longer than any of the other ones. Right? So he, they care. They're not leaving them high and dry. First, Paul urges them to be trained in love toward their husbands and children. It's a single word that Paul either made up or is rarely used. And then another single word. It's they are to be lovers of husbands and lovers of children. Now, at first, this may strike us as odd. Why would young married women in particular have to be trained to love their spouses and offspring? But you don't have to think very long before you'll have some answers to that question. First, most people who married over the centuries did not do so for romantic love or, frankly, love of any kind. That's just a fact of history. So you'd have to learn how to love because that is God's requirement for the man to the wife and the wife to the man. Second, since love is seeking the good of another, it's not mostly about emotional feelings. The content of love needs to be explained and worked into the lives of these younger women. This is why it is so important for you older women to be good theologians. And I don't mean you can quote Bavink in the Dutch. I mean, you need to know what the word of God teaches about all the ordinary aspects of the Christian life. And you need to be close to Christ so that you can explain what love really looks like, what it, what it is in that setting. Third, and this will come as a shock to some of you, but husbands and children aren't always lovely. And yet they must be loved. They must be loved. And so training on how to do this is vital to a Christian home. 
I recently heard a man say that a wife is never in the scriptures commanded to love her husband. The husband is commanded to love his wife and she is to submit to him. But this verse corrects his error. We'll just put it that way. It's right here. Ladies, you need to love your husbands. Husbands, you need to love your wives. And you need to be so good at it that they learn how to do that from you. And when they can't and when they get stuck and, and when you're being ornery and the kids are being living out their heart, they're still unregenerate hearts. Go to an older lady and ask for ask for advice. Loving husbands and children involves putting selfishness to death. And guess how that is largely done? (laughs) Self-control. Self-control. That's what the verse. Yeah, that's, that's what's next in the verse. By knowing what God wants and putting it into practice, even when our flesh wants to indulge itself for itself, that's self-control. Self-mastery is a beautiful and valuable grace in young women's lives because you set the tone of the house. You, you really do because most of your husbands, they're not in the house most of the day. In our culture, men often work outside the home. Now, that's got some real problems with it, but that's, that's just the reality of the world as it is today. And so... Your tone, your self-control will play a large part in the joy or the misery of your house. These young women are also to be pure, which means modest and innocent. Holiness is required even in the home. Loud attention-seeking, brazen women do not match this requirement any more than loud, attention-seeking, brazen men meets the other requirements. Next, Paul requires young married women with children to be working at home, that is, to be occupied with domestic affairs. It is these women, not older women, they have other duties, including helping these younger women in their homes with their duties. Not unmarried women who don't have these duties, but these women, they are to be busy about their families. That doesn't mean they can't leave the house, but it does mean their lives are to be centered on their families. This is truly a great and weighty calling from God, and it must not be neglected to satisfy personal desires. Self-control again, there it is. You're going to love it by the end of the sermon or hate it. One of the two is the only options. Husbands and children are not to come second to your career, young women. This is a timeless rule from God. And yes, it has exceptions. We've already given you some. And we're not going to labor on that. Because what... Because what our society needs to hear, including Christians, is that this is the ordinary thing, not the extraordinary thing. Amen. Right? If this is your calling, then delight to glorify God and serve your family by working at it with all of your might. Our culture is adamantly opposed to this and bombards young women with alternatives. It's really false advertising. And I thank God that this body, 
seeks to obey God in this area very well. Young women are also to be kind. With this calling, it's really easy to be sour or complaining. But like all service to God and man, it's a privilege that ought to be done with a generous and kind nature. Finally, Paul urges these young mothers to be submissive to their husbands. Again, not all men in every situation, their own husbands. And not in a command that disobeys God. But in every ordinary and holy situation in life, wives should develop the beautiful habit of saying, okay, with a smile. You want to watch your husband faint? <laughs> Ladies, I got a sure way. You don't have to touch him. You, you won't have to swing at him. All you have to do is turn around when he makes a suggestion and go, okay. And he'll just, he'll just, he'll just melt. Okay? He'll just melt. This doesn't mean you don't have your opinion. You don't give your opinion. You don't discuss options. He doesn't ask for your advice. You don't get to ask questions. It doesn't mean any of that, of course. But it does mean that you are ready and willing to put yourself under your husband's leadership. And just as there are times where he will say, okay, with a smile to you, because he knows that this will please you and there's nothing wrong with it. And he thinks it's, and so it's like, and men just reach out and grab her as she falls and give her a hug. Right? That's what women should do to their husbands as well. When you develop the love and the submission that easily says yes it will please the Lord. It will make the home a peaceful place. And honestly, if you want to talk about benefits, <laughs> human to human benefits, it will give any good husband great motivation to love you with even more respect and honor than he currently does. Yeah. Finally, fourthly, young men, verse six, urge the younger men to be Self-controlled. Now, I know you young men are thinking, oh, good, there's only one. We're going to get past this quickly, and I'm not going to have to feel the pinch of conscience. I hope not. Nope. The instruction really is very simple, though. It's be self-controlled. It's work toward self-mastery. Don't be ruled by lusts or laziness or pleasure Grow up. Grow up. <laughs> Become a mature man who doesn't have his passions rule him, but be the man who is ruled by the word and spirit of God. Amen. The proverb says, he who rules his own spirit is better than he who takes a city. Self-control is worth so much more than physical power. 1 Corinthians 16, 13 explains it this way. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. That sounds like verse 2, doesn't it? Act like men. Be strong. Young men with self-control grow in sanctification. And they don't make, at least not to the same degree or quantity, 
the foolish and harmful decisions that young men who don't have self-control make. Well, we need to stop there because of time, but let me give you uh, four uses and then, and then we'll be done. First of all, I hope you recognize from our text that Christianity is a word-based religion. Christianity is a word-based religion. It is rooted in propositional truths, statements of fact, conveyed in the Holy Scriptures. These must be known, accepted, and trusted to be a true Christian. We become Christians not by some ecstatic experience, though conversion may be quite powerful and emotional. But we are converted as the Holy Spirit takes the word of God and gives us life to believe it and the Christ that it speaks of. So unlike religions which give automatic grace to unthinking people or those religions where they urge their followers to turn off their minds in some fashion, Christianity seeks to come to the heart, the soul, the inner man, through the mind. The judgment and the will and the emotions are affected, but only as the mind comes to know the truth. And so then from the inside out, we begin to act in a new way. So we must all drink in apostolic truth. Time to meddle again. Let's not focus on trendy religious subjects, reformed fads, and yes, there are many, <laughs> minutia, what call, Paul calls disputes about words, tertiary and debatable things. Focus on sound, healthy truth. Oh yes, sharpen each other as iron with iron in doctrine and practice. But don't endlessly debate things that distract from the core issues of the church. Things like love to God, grace, holiness, witness, service, brothers, younger men in particular. When was the last time you got together to discuss how can I be more sober-minded, more dignified, more self-controlled, more sound in faith, love, and endurance? You need to ask yourself, do you love to learn about how to live according to the truth, or do you just love gaining facts about the truth? Now, you know me. (laughs) You know I want you to know more facts about the truth. And I want you to correct theological error in your thinking and put on righteous thinking and all of that But if it ends there, you're a stillborn Christian. Faith without works is dead. 
It must change you. It does change you, but it must change you. Is the truth that you are studying right now changing your life in growing practical virtue and holiness? That's the first use. Second, it isn't moralism, but it is pleasing to God to pursue the things in these verses. Virtue lists and morality and the law, they all have a place in the Christian life. Now, they have to be in their proper place, of course. But when they are properly rooted in Christ's work to transform lives, they are a right and even very important focus in the Christian life. I mean, he spent all these verses in this short book doing it. You've got the word and the spirit. So come to public worship. Study your Bibles. Pray. Be alert and work at increasing in these virtues. And then out of these virtues, guess what's going to flow? Good works. The callings God has given you, you're going to do them well. Because God is much more concerned about your being than your doing. Don't be so busy that you're not growing. Why does God sideline us? So often, probably some of the time it's because he cares more about our character development than he does that thing that he's got a billion ways to get done. He doesn't need us, but he does want us to be changed into the image of Christ. Third, I would urge you to be scripturally motivated in your pursuit of these things. There are many biblical reasons to chase after these characteristics. There are three given in our text, which I really haven't mentioned until now. They are these. In verse 5, living so God's word isn't reviled or abusively criticized. Verse 8, so that the opponents of Christianity won't have anything to say evil about us. And in verse 10, so that the doctrine of Christ is adorned. In other words, Christians should be motivated by God's reputation and work more than their own personal benefit. Now, again, don't, don't misunderstand. If you glorify God, you will enjoy him. If you obey him, you will face more joy than misery in this life. There are benefits to obedience. The Bible is full of that. But here, be virtuous because it glorifies God. Because it, it makes Christ beautiful to people. And it keeps slander down. The highest reasons aren't to make your own life better. Again, although they will. The highest reasons are centered in God. His word, his kingdom, his son. We claim to be a reformed church. Because we think... That best summarizes what the Bible teaches, not because we love labels. But if anything can be said about what should be able to be said about a Reformed church is that they desire the glory of God first and foremost. Amen. And this set of lists shows us in a very practical way how we can do that. And so I simply urge all of us to be about that business. 
of glorifying God. Amen. And fourth and finally, a changed life, not talk, is the mark of a true Christian. A changed life, not talk, is the mark of a true Christian. Not words, but deeds. James tells us that someone who says they have faith but doesn't have works isn't in fact saved. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 4.20 that the kingdom of God consists not in talk, but in power. Are you one that claims to be a Christian? But the virtues listed here are completely absent? Do you still live in worldly passions? Then you are in great danger of deceiving yourself. I urge you to agree with God about your sins. Turn from them and turn to Christ. And he will not only save you from the penalty of your sins, he will transform you so that you'll sometimes wonder, is this even me? How did this happen? I, I don't have this capacity. No, you don't of yourself. And quit trying to offer it to God as if he would somehow find that acceptable. What rot. You beg God to change you. You agree with God. You confess your sins. You say, Christ is my only hope. I'm not going to lean on my under, own understanding. I'm going, to, I'm going to follow you. You you talk to God that way. He will not ignore you. He will not turn you away. He will change you. Amen. Or maybe you're one where self-control has actually begun to characterize your life in some places. Are your desires changing? Have your judgments been adjusted? Have your affections and appetites been renewed? Then with all of your remaining weakness, dear child of God, know that you are his. Rest in him and the salvation brought by Christ and live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Preaching and Teaching, brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. CBTS is a confessional Reformed Baptist seminary which provides affordable online theological education to help the church and is calling to train faithful men for the gospel ministry. To learn more, visit cbtseminary.org.